0: So we are off again, off. (laughs) That happens to be true today. Those of you on the Internet might wonder why I am so bright. (laughs) Next week, as I was telling the congregation, will be the mirrored white suit. But uh, we're trying some technological advances and we'll see how they work out. Complain to the usual people if you don't like it. That's how we work around here. So we are at February the 18th. 2018, lecture discussion number 11 on the book of Joel. And last Sunday, lecture number 10, for those uh, uh, keeping score at home, I concluded that the, the study uh, with the repentance of the woman at Genesis 3. And because she repents and she is renamed, it results in her renaming. And she is renamed, as you know, to Eve. Ah, here comes the snare drum, right on time. Perfect. Did you get your book? I need to know that. Yes. Okay, good. Did you bring it with you? No. Okay, big mistake. <laughs> Let me repeat that. The woman is renamed Genesis 3, and she, and she is renamed because of her repentance at her trial, before and during her trial. She obviously repents before her trial. She announces that repentance at her trial. And that results in, her repentance results in her renaming to Eve. And Eve means the mother of all living. And I ended with that, and I wanted to reemphasize it today intentionally just to make sure that it goes in multiple lectures so if somebody comes across it they know. She is the mother of all the living, or if you will, the first of those who repent. So understanding that the woman repents first of something. More specifically, she's the first of those who repent of their unbelief. And uh, to repeat the repeating, I want to emphasize this as much as I can over the next few weeks. I'm doing so intentionally. And I have long made the case, as you know, with you all having been bludgeoned at the receiving end of the relentless bludgeoning that I do on this subject... That Adam did not choose unbelief. The woman chose unbelief. Adam believed God throughout the entirety of Genesis chapter 3. That assault from Satan. He never had unbelief. It's the woman. That had unbelief. Adam was not ever deceived. Not once. 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15. It was the woman who fell into sin first. And her unbelief was the precursor. Her unbelief allowed her to be deceived. And it is my opinion, as you know, I propose, as you know, that unbelief and being deceived are imminently joined in a occurrence traceable to a cause. The order is unbelief. We're trying out the new lit-up board now. How does that look? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Everyone, let the record show oohs and ahs came from unbelief. And unbelief leads to deception or deceived. The handwriting even looks better on this board now. So there's your order. Unbelief first, then you are subject to deception, are likely to be deceived, or will be deceived. The point being that the recognition of the differences of Adam and the woman are essential to the solving of Genesis 3 with respect to their falls. Let me put it another way. Both have sinned here. Death comes through Adam's sin, physical death. Both have sinned, but the fall of Adam is not the same as the fall of the woman. And again, I have been blasted away at this for most of my so-called career, always from the position that incorrect analysis or failure at Genesis 1 through 4, chapters 1 through 4, will precipitate doctrinal error throughout the remaining, the entire following scriptures. In other words, there's a reason that God has put the order that he has. He starts the way he starts, and he goes through a process that is incredibly ordered in his Bible, his word. His word requires that we fully understand Genesis chapter 1 through 4 in order to understand the rest of his scripture. If you wish to think of it this way, 1 through 4s are the cornerstone of your tower. Remember that parable in Luke 14:28 through 35. You're building a tower. Who builds a tower, uh, who builds a tower that can withstand an attack? Well, this is where your tower starts. If you're wrong at chapters 1 through 4 at Genesis, you're a mess. I'm going to stay a mess. I could make a list. I'm a little worried about my time already, so I won't do it. I might do it next week. But uh, for those on the Internet, you at least can repeat it. What do we do in Genesis 1 through 4? We start with the light of life, literal creation. Darkness and light separated. Living souls are revealed, having been created. Breath of life is given. Mankind is created. Organic Eden or organic reality as opposed to mineral Eden is exposed. The tree of life and the tree of surely die. Good and evil. These are the subjects of 1 through 4 Genesis. The lie of Satan. The fall of man. The confessions of Adam and the woman at their trials and at the trial of Satan. The witnessing that these two do. They are two witnesses against Satan. Adam and Eve are finally two witnesses come forward at a trial and testify against Satan. The angelic host knows that and sees that. That's an incredible event. The curses are then given. The lake of fire is revealed. The renaming of the woman and now the blood coverings, the protecting of the tree of life with the Shekinah glory. And the cherubim, the omission of the blood covering from the offering of Cain and the murder of Abel. There's your cursory, your shallow, your basic list of Genesis 1 through 4. Errors in any of those subjects. And guess what? Wheels come off the rest of the Bible. It's as simple as that. And again, that's just a basic list. Don't write me. Okay, write me, but it's a basic list. So, ultimately, you ask this question Why did these things happen this way? Okay? The woman is renamed because she repents of her unbelief. And is the mother of all who live. Therefore, all who live repent of their unbelief. What exactly, what specifically did the woman choose to not believe about God? And Then ask yourself, once you have decided that, do you believe it? What principally did she repent of and then re- then believe? Or, if you want to put it this way, as you know, what was the lie of the serpent of old, the totality of Satan's lie? Because Eve believed it. And then the woman, then she identifies it as a lie at her trial and at Satan's trial. And that is a statement of by her of incredible significance, never to be ignored. She says of her own free will that Satan is a liar and a deceiver and a murderer, and her testimony was not coerced. And the angelic realm witnessed that. All of the angelic realm. That is an extraordinary thing. And ultimately, all of that leads to Joel's, I'm sorry, leads to Joel chapters 2 and 3 and ultimately to Revelation chapter 9. So I'm saying to you, what we've talked about for years in Genesis 3 goes to Joel 2 and 3 and Joel 2 and 3 is exactly, or very much like, uh, inseparable from Revelation chapter 9. And therefore, we get the most obvious of the obvious questions. If Genesis 3 leads to Joel 2 and 3, as I'm telling you it does, and Joel 2 and 3 leads you to Revelation 9, which you know, how is it that Genesis 3 gets you to Joel 2-3? Or let's put it this way. What is the most correspondent or prominent corresponding facet of Genesis 3 and Joel 2-3 or Revelation 9? What is tying them all together? Guess. What have I just spent the first 15 minutes or so t- telling you? I'll help. Revelation 9 concludes with one thing. Do you remember? This is where the two woes are. I have two woes. I have the woe where death is suspended, and I have woe, the woe where death is overwhelmingly um, occurring on earth because of the abyss beneath, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, containment of these beings in the abyss and the containment of these beings in the euphrates that are let loose onto the earth and there are millions and millions and millions of them remember all of that and at the end of the second woe one thing is prominent one subject is importantly mentioned and that is repentance Mankind, at the end of the two woes, refuses to repent. Absolutely will not. That's Revelation 9, 20 and 21. That tells you that repentance takes you back to the name Eve. Because she was the first to repent. Here I have no repentance. Here I have the first repentance of unbelief. So that is how I get from Genesis 3 through Joel 2 and 3 to Revelation 9. Hopefully that makes sense. In the face of overwhelming evidence at Revelation 9, a deluge, if you will, of evidence, man nonetheless chooses unbelief knowing all of the evidences. There's a tremendous amount of signs, if you will, incredible things that happen in Revelation 9, and man is unaffected by it. In fact, is hardened in their unbelief about something. And why do you suppose this is? Knowing the evidence, they still choose unbelief. And speaking of a deluge of evidences, what are the similarities and also the differences of the flood of Noah and the tribulation? Because they have a tremendous relationship. Ask it a different way. Why are there differences between the flood of Noah and the tribulation? And then why are there correspondence? What are the components that uh, are related? What is God saying here? Let me give you a quick example. What does God do in the flood? That's a really difficult question. What does he use? Water. Got one right. God brings water. He uses water and he does this to asphyxiate the animals in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. That's Genesis 7.22. So he's talking about the breath. He's talking about nostrils. And he asphyxiates them. Can I spell asphyxiates? maybe remains to be seen I'll wait for my mail why does god use water genesis 7:22 that's what I was really going to put on the board and I got lost why does god do this this way it becomes a central question in scripture obviously the breath of life is S- is important here what is the breath of life the breath of life is a spiritual element it is a spiritual process it is a spirituality what is the breathing process that is a physical process that is the uh, lungs take in particles don 't they they take in uh, air if you will oxygen and it is and it is actually a uh, something that has substance it's Spatially extended, to use the phrase. So I'm going to tell you, or at least I'm going to propose, the breath of life is symbolized by our breathing process. Hopefully that made sense. So you have the breath of life that is made of what? What is the breath of life made of? It is made of something spiritual. Where does it come from? It has to be a spiritual entity that provides it. Therefore, it is from God himself. And your breathing process. When you fog up a mirror, or walk outside in Alaska, and you see the breath, your breath, you can visually see it. Uh, that breath that you see, that you feel, that you can, that the pressure that you utilize when you play the trumpet, for example. Uh, I actually had a pretty good trumpet lesson. Would you like to hear about my trumpet? No, you. Didn't. I go to trumpet lessons for now years, and every week it's—I uh, can't say that word here—but it's a word that rhymes with truck, and never mind. Yeah, and he tells me every week, "Boy, you're terrible," and and he's got this tremendous demeanor. I—I I, 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 someday he should be a doctor, but he just is—he just listens to me, and he goes, "That was awful," but this. Last Saturday, we played classical duets, which means that I have to play it in time, accurately, uh, and breathe. Which, for me, that is a tremendous amount of processing. And I usually don't do well, but I did pretty darn good. Good enough that he almost wants me to tell people that, I, that he's my teacher. So that's that's, that's the threshold. <laughs> Anyway, I understand breath and breathing and how to pressure it, how to make it, how to utilize it to to play, to blow through an instrument, to release air. I got my air. If you're a runner or an athlete, you understand air. If you're a swimmer, oh my goodness, you really have some operational understanding with regard to Genesis 6 and 7. Obviously, the breath of life is symbolized by our breathing process. There is a relationship established connecting our physical breath with our spiritual breath. Important to know that. So when you see him talking about breath or doing something with breathing, realize that God is establishing also the breath of life. So Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, without him nothing was made. That was made, John 1, 3. So nothing was made that was made. So the spiritual element and the physical element, all are a Christ-centered construct. Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, decides to cover the earth in water. Water. And I asked last week, I'll ask again this week, what is he doing? What happens when he covers the earth in water? Don't say it gets wet. That's all true. That's true. But what the water does is asphyxiate, takes the breath. So you have this dichotomy, if you will, this twofold, this dualistic example or method. He's the one that gives the breath of life. And then he takes the physical breath that is a portrait of the breath of life. And his method is water. Again, why water? So immediately, because Mike's here today, who was watching this? Who was watching it? As opposed to who was experiencing it? What did the fallen angelic beings as well as the unfallen angelic beings think of taking the breath away from everything that is on dry land? Everything on the earth. I answered that specifically or said that specifically. Did the angelic beings, when they saw Christ, when they saw God flood the earth, did they know why? Drowning. Did they know why water was being used? I think they did. I think it was immediately obvious. Yes, question in the back from the new guy. Everyone, I believe that the understanding of why water was being used was fairly universal, but certainly was the case with the angelic ghost. They knew why water So how did they figure that out? And I've said previously, last Sunday, sort of, drowning is a process, isn't it? It takes time, as opposed to instant, sudden death. Jesus Christ identifies himself. God could have immediately, Jesus Christ says, listen, I'm the one that can do, I can divide the spirit from the body. The soul from the body. I can, the breath of life from the body. I can do it and I can reunite it. I am the only one that can do this. I am the only one. No one can do it but me. He says that about himself. So God could have immediately separated the living soul from the physical body in a twinkling, can't he? But he didn't here. He used a process that takes time. How long does it take to drown? Three minutes? Four minutes? Yeah. So you have a death that occurs over time. That is what God chose to do as opposed to instantaneous. Question is, why? Why water? Obviously, He had death over time. What is all, what does time allow for? Just, what is time typically in the Bible? I'll let you consider that, but you know where I'm headed, right? I want you to imagine if if Henry Morris is correct with regard to the amount of people that were on the earth at the time of the flood, because remember you have significantly truncated uh, death processes in the sense of the the disease and uh, physical violence was. It took a while for all of this to go, so there there could be there, could, there are billions of people in his calculation. All of them drowned. And that's just the people. The food supply was amazing. So. The water supply was amazing. The weather was almost as good as Anchorage. Almost right there. Gardening, for example, was, uh, was pretty much unaffected. So. Plus childbirth, the women could have multiple children, multiple times. The ages were a thousand years old. So, how many people were there? If, if and I think Morris's uh, uh, work is actually correct here. So there are billions here, and they all drown. All of them drown. All of them take four or five minutes to drown. Why did he do that? Why not instantaneous? What did the time? What is the difference between the time of drowning five minutes and instantaneous? Instantaneous was not an option. God did not have that option, or He He didn't consider the option. His omniscience makes it so. Again, why is it so? Why is time an element? Why, as you know, the permineralization evidences are replete with struggle. Fighting to breathe. The fossil record shows us all of these billions and billions and billions of animals were struggling to fight off this death from water sources, or from water and heat as a matter of fact. So the situation of Genesis 6 required death by struggle, by fighting to breathe, the removing of the breath. What's going on in Genesis 6? I have unceasing murder. I have great wickedness. Only evil continually. The Nephilim. And all of them, all of that is erased by water. Death by drowning. And all dry land creatures die. Laboring to breathe. What has been proved by that? If you're one of these that were to drown, put yourself in the position, what do you remember about drowning? Do you cease to exist? Let's get that off the table. No. So you go through a physical death process by drowning, and what do you remember of it? I'd ask you this. Who did you cry out to? Did you cry out? Did you repent? Do you have time? What did you do with your last five minutes? What are you going to do with your last five minutes? What are people going to do with their last five minutes? Some get it, some don't. But everyone got some time. How much time remains to be seen. We'll get to that discussion as we can. But to repeat, what has been proved and what will be remembered Genesis 6.12 Genesis 6, is likely the definitive verse. So let's go ahead and read that. Because that, I think, starts to open the doors. So let's fire it out there. Genesis 6.12. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh. How much flesh? All flesh corrupt. What is your definition of corrupt? All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh corrupted, Genesis six twelve. So Genesis six twelve is providing indispensable commentary on Genesis six seven. So let's back up and look at that. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. Sorry is a humanistic substitution. The language is more accurately, for it repenteth me that I have made them. That's what he really said. Repenteth. And that of course is also difficult to understand. It's a mystery. That means there's something fantastic here. God brings repentance to the fore. Repentance is literally change one's mind or change the mind. God is omniscient. He's immutable. That means he cannot change does not change. It's impossible for him to change. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. God does not repent. It is in conflict with omniscience. So God does not repent. However, God is sorrowful. He grieves. He weeps for the lost. But again, he does not repent. So what is he trying to say? One thing is clear that he is bringing repentance to the process, isn't he? To the subject. Every thought of man was only evil continually. The wickedness of man was great. Genesis 6, 5. How bad was it? How great was the wickedness? Allow your imagination to consider And then raise it by thousands of degrees. We have never seen anything like what was going on in Genesis 6. And we're not seeing it today. As bad as it is, uh, it is nothing like Genesis 6. Only evil continually. Only evil. Nothing but evil. And it was continuous. So try to understand that. And again, recognize that you can't. The conditions were beyond our comprehension. And frankly, we can only guess what a world where only continual evil exists. How much killing do you think there was? Why were they killing? They loved to kill. They loved evil. Interesting, interesting. ah, I may have to put the Worcestershire sauce in. People ask me, why do you have Worcestershire sauce here? Because I might have to add it to the aspartame and the aluminum poisoning to get through the lecture at some point. That's a a radical step, I know. Interestingly, Sodom is also or likewise described as Genesis 6. The evil of Sodom and the evil of Genesis 6 are best friends. So when you begin to think about what happened at Sodom, you have to raise your understanding. Wow, I've blocked the sun here. This is like having a hat now. (laughs) Which I I may need a hat. A hat would be cool. Who wears a hat? Oh, cowboy churches do. Beat me to it. When you think of Sodom, recognize that it is described as Genesis 6 is. And so the evil in Sodom is far, far beyond anything that is ever portrayed in the typical church. It is ridiculously high. God singles them out. Also, equally interestingly, the creatures of the sea are exempted. Did you notice that? I hope you did. The sea life is not judged as severely as the land. We can only assume that they had not yet been totally corrupted. Everything on the earth. every Again, so God said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air. He does not say sea. If they had not been completely corrupted by your definition of corrupted, and make sure that you have a definition of corrupted that actually fits the term corrupted. Why the delay for the sea? Why isn't the sea animals, the sea creatures, in the same category as the land creatures? And ultimately, this is reduced to a couple of questions. How much damage had Satan and the fallen sons of God, the Nephilim and humanity, done to the creation of God? How much damage was there? It apparently is irreparable damage, isn't it? It's to a place where it cannot be repaired except by destroying it. And then ask this, how did they accomplish it? And why did they do it? What was their plan? What was their motivation? What did they hope to to, uh, achieve? Doesn't it intrigue you to recognize that Satan only drew one third of the angels? He only got one third of them. How much of humanity did he get at Genesis 6? What did it say? All flesh. He not only got all of humanity, he got all of the land animals. He got the birds. He got everything. One third of the angelic record, uh, realm, but only, but all of man, with the exception of Noah and his family. All of man was evil continually. Satan was far more successful. Again, how did he do it? Even the animals had to be destroyed. And you should note that this corruption, as it is defined, occurs in Sodom, as I said, but also in Canaan, if you're wondering why Saul was told to kill everything. Okay, I'm moving way too fast, so let's back up a bit. What have we accumulated so far? We have breath water, and asphyxiation. Again, why? We have repentance. Genesis 3, Revelation 9 through Joel 2 and 3. Evil has been chosen. Mankind only knows evil. Where is the knowing of good? Remember, this is about knowing good from evil, but there doesn't seem to be knowing any good here. All we know is evil. Why, isn't, why doesn't anyone know any good? Evil has been chosen. Why hasn't good been chosen? Obviously, these themes are present, having been established at Genesis 1 through 3. And the world is covered by water again. Because it starts out in Genesis 1, 1, covered by water. So the question becomes, is the first water and the second water tied together? What do you think? Well, I think it's obviously so. In Genesis 1 1, the waters are gathered. Dry land appears in Genesis 1 9. The dry land is called earth. On the fourth day, living souls were placed in abundance in the waters. It says living creatures in your Bibles. But if you study the Hebrew, the words are living souls. He puts living souls in the waters and birds flew above the earth. That's on the fourth day. And the principle, the definition of uncorrupted was given in that particular thing. Let me give it to you. That particular text or passage. So God created great sea Creatures it actually is living souls. God created great sea living souls and every living soul that moves, with which the waters abounded, according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Genesis one twenty one. The definition of uncorrupted is now given. According to their kind, and it was good. So there you go. Where can I put that on the board? According to their their kind. That's good. So what would be not good? Corrupted. So what does according to their kind mean? Then God said... Verse 24, Let the earth bring forth the living souls according to its kind. This is the fifth day. Cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind. Cattle according to its kind. Everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw it was good. Did you get the message? According to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind. That's good. Corruption, evil. So now we have the definition of good. Or we have the opposite of a corruption. So what does according to its kind mean to you? Because that's, of course, completely worthless, isn't it? No offense. Sorry, not really. But sorry. What does God mean by according to its kind? Everything that was on the earth according to its kind, and God saw it was good. Thus, the obvious conclusion, corruption would be not according to its kind. Evil would be not according to its kind. According to its kind must be fully defined. Therefore, we will make an attempt to do that intelligently in the weeks to come. So now make the application to Genesis 6. Obviously, I don't have according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind. In Genesis 6, what do I have? I have something corrupting that. Now go back to Genesis 1 where we have the first water. Water has covered the earth in Genesis 1. And prevailed on the earth. If you go to Genesis 7:17, 7, let's rush over there really fast. 7:17. 7, now the flood was on the earth forty days. The water increased and lifted up the ark, and and it rose above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about the surface of the waters. Let's go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the of the waters, the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Do you see the similarities? In Genesis one two, the Spirit of God hovered, moved over the face of the waters. At Genesis seven eighteen, the Ark of Noah, which is a casket, it's designed to be a casket, it's described as a casket. The casket moved on. About on the surface of the waters. So in one I have the Spirit. In 7.18 I have the casket of Noah. Who watched that? Who's watching it? Did humanity get to see it? Where is the souls of those destroyed physically in the flood? Where did they go? Revelation tells you what did those who were destroyed physically in the flood what did what did they see? did they see the entirety of what God did? all they had really was their own personal experience didn't they? what did they learn from it because everyone who drowned there learned something and who is the they? as you know um, I spent, a little bit of time with my father as he died, and he kept telling me prior to, well, he told me probably 10 or 15 times, he told me how smart I was, which was a shock to him. It was kind of an achievement for me to get him to admit it. He would never speak into a recording device or write it down. It was just his word against mine. But he used to say to me, as smart as you are, uh, I'm dying. And dying brings wisdom that you will not have until you're here. And he told me one of the last things he said to me, as you know, I'll see you in 30 years. I check my my calendar all the time. He might just be right. Bummer. (laughs) He hadn't... He used to tell me, you have an enlarged heart. I do. I have an enlarged heart. Some of that's athletic. Some of that is his genetic gift to me. And he used to tell me all the time, you yeah, I live as long as me. You're genetically inferior, he was saying. It was just, it was a little joke. But he knew that the dying process brought wisdom, brought it to him. And I tell this story as you know On his last words were repentance. Crying out to God to save him. It's what he did. And it never left me. still hasn't. I keep repeating it because I only have so many stories that I remember. In case you're bored with them. So, did they... Whoever they is, the ones that died in the flood, did they see everything that God did with the water? Did they understand it? What did they learn? Remember, they're evil continually. They don't know good at all. Did they realize that what was happening when God flooded the earth? Answer this question. Don't raise your hand. Don't say it aloud to your neighbor unless something unfortunate occurs. When God flooded the earth, is that good or evil? Obviously, it is good. God is omnibenevolent. Why is it good to end sin? Why is it good to end evil? Hopefully, you don't have to work too hard on that question. But did the ones who were in the drowning, the ones who drowned, the ones who had their breath taken, what did they think? What did they learn? What did they do? And those questions remain unresolved. At best, the experience of drowning, the symbol of the breath of life. Physical breath was being replaced by water, isn't it? I'm taking the breath out and I'm putting in water. Water is now in the lungs instead of breath. Why is God doing that? What's it mean? It obviously has great meaning. And obviously as well, the angelic host, the fallen and unfallen, saw and witnessed all of it start to finish. All of dry land went through it, the Bible says. That emphasis on dry land. Had the angels seen this before? Is this a replay? Is this a duplication of Genesis 1-1? Where's Genesis 1-1? That's for you to decide. You have to decide whether or not Genesis 7 and 8 and Genesis 1-1 are... Is Genesis 7 and 8 a repeat of Genesis 1-1? What did the angels think? This is the second time they have seen water cover the entire earth. What did they think? So you decide that. As you know, it is the ultimate timeline problem. Be sure to complete your assignment. Show your work name and class period in the upper right-hand corner. Test on Friday. If I had a dollar for every time I said that, I would have the best motor home in the state of Alaska. Okay. For today, however, allow for today, the hypothesis that this is the second time that God has ended evil with water. What would the angels be thinking about that? Do they breathe like Weebly breathe? Had they, especially with the corruption level that had occurred on the earth, Again, on the earth. And they, the fallen, had a hand in effecting that corruption. Had they anticipated that God would use water again? Did they expect water? Did they go, we're going to get to this point and he's going to hit us with water? Just like last time. That occurred to them. How smart are they? When they're in the middle of all doing all of this, are they going, hmm, look, water. He receded the water, and he brought up the land. We've made a mess out of the land. Well, what's he going to do? Wind's water day? The water that had been gathered together Genesis 1-9, remember, gathered together. The land is revealed. Would that water be returned to cover the earth? Were they counting on it? Was this their intent from the onset? Genesis 6. Had they put it all together? Are they smarter than a fourth grader or is it a fifth grader? I can't remember the show. Because fifth grade seems to be the level of education now in this country. If you watch TV, I don't think it's even fifth grade. Notice the water recedes or subsides a second time in Genesis 8. Dry land reappears. In Genesis 8. So I have the same pattern that I have in Genesis 1. Dry land. Here it is again. Noah tests for the reappearance with the dove. Remember that? The dove comes back with what? Olives or an olive tree leaf. What are the meanings of the dove and the olive tree and dry land? Because clearly there, there's a relationship between water, doves, uh, olives and dry land. Water covering dry land carries the implication of judgment. Dry land emerging, the water receiving, therefore, seems to raise the introduction of relief or forgiveness or grace or mercy. You see, one could ask the most obvious of the obvious questions. Why does the water abate? Why does it ever receive? Why not stay covered in water? What's it covering? Is it covering evil? why give evil a chance to breathe? Keep it covered. But the waters recede. They subside. Why does the dry land appear? Why is there an ending to the water? Who does this? Why does he do it this way? And as you know, God promises the noetic covenant, Genesis 8:20 through 9, 8. Let's go read that really fast. We'll start at 9, 1. 820 to 928 is where the entirety of it. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth again. He said it before to Adam and the woman named the mother of all living. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth. Now that's a change on every bird of the air and all that move on the earth and all. And all of the fish of the sea, they are given into your hands. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even the green herb herbs but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood surely for your life blood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it from the hand of man from the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man whoever sheds man's blood by that by man his blood shall be shed for in the image of God he made man as for you be fruitful and multiply bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, 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 I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living soul that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you never again. Shall all flesh be cut off by the water? Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Why not? Works pretty good. Seems effective. Why not stick with a winner? He says, I'm not going to take the breath of life by drowning. I'm not going to asphyxiate it. I'm not going to replace your breath with water ever again. So there must be meanings here, huh? And the remaining verses are the explanation of the light color spectrum and the cursing of Canaan, which should not be cleaved from the study of the Noadic covenant. Once again, there's an order here. He's put this Noadic covenant in order. Let's pull out a few things. Fruitful and multiply. The second such commandment that he's done. He's done the commandment twice. Fear is now here. And every living thing is food. Those are dramatic changes. Obviously, these uh, two, these last two, fear and every living thing is food, are obvious. They're incredible, but they're obvious from the original. uh, They're changes from the original conditions. Adam's relationships with the animals and perhaps these animals. I thought it again. Perhaps these very animals notice how I said that was one of peace. Noah doesn't have peace. Noah's is one of fear. For Adam every tree was food except for the tree of surely die. No animals were food. He had food everywhere. Noah is going to eat animals. Every living animal is food for Noah. The differences are astonishing. I said last week, I asked last week, and this is why I asked last week. After Adam and the woman whom Adam renamed, the first to have repented from her unbelief, the first human being to repent from unbelief, after he did that, He's covered, both of them are covered in the blood of two animals. They did not eat those animals, but the blood from those animals covered them. And those, that blood is a picture of the uh, blood of Christ, right? A symbol, a type. And then after that, they're driven out of the garden of God. And the garden is guarded from them. Specifically, the tree of life is no longer accessible to them. So they cannot get to the tree of life while they are in a sin condition. And I asked, did animals remain in the garden? And if they did, what happened to them while the earth was continually evil? And how many? What were they doing in the garden? Let's ask it this way. How many rabbits are in the garden? If God left animals in the garden, how big is the garden? If God did it this way, why did He do this? Did He know something? Is He outside of time? Is He omniscient? if all flesh was corrupted as it says did the garden of god contain uncontaminated uncorrupted animals from where did god bring the animals that he brought to noah because god had to bring the animals to noah and god also brought the animals to adam so both of these men have this experience for they do two they do different things Noah brings them to the ark where they repopulate the earth. Adam's situation is significantly different. On what basis were the animals selected? The Bible actually tells us. But let's back up even more. Why is there life in the sea? Because i got life in the sea. Why? I have sea life, right? We say seafood. Is there such a thing as Seafood. Is that a contradiction? I'm not sure. Steve Cronister dies from eating oysters that are not properly cooked or sushi. Steve Cronister dies from eating poorly prepared sushi. That's murder, as you know. There's no possibility sushi is coming at me willingly. Not happening. <laughs> Why anyone would eat that? I, I lived in Hawaii. Holy mackerel, honey child. I saw that stuff made. Run in fear. It's not cooked. you got to be kidding me. I would go, yes, I would go to a sushi bar with a flamethrower. That's how I'd approach it. Give me that. We'll fix this for you. Anyway, where was I? Oh, out of time. That's where I am. Why is there life in the sea? Sea life during the flood see there i got living creatures in the sea and some may have perished i expect they did the apocalyptic nature of the event would surely have killed some of the creatures in the sea there would be drowning of sea mammals certainly possible but sea life had no had nowhere near the disadvantage of the land they had quite the advantage in a flood that's got to be conceded notice in the tribulation the opposite of this is true look at revelation 16 really fast almost done you did good you hung on pretty darn strong i'm very impressed especially with the visitor who's the visitor no one this is the first bowl then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels go and pour out the bowls of wrath on the earth so this is the seventh trumpet right so the first went out because the seventh trumpet contains all the bowls so the first went out and poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon men malignant is the actual word who had the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as that of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. There you go. Solved it for you. Foul and malignant sores connected to the mark of the beast. There. Piece of cake. Actually, piece of pie. Easiest cake. The sea becomes as the blood of a dead man. What is the blood of a dead man like? Every living creature in the sea dies. Genesis 7:21 through 24, all flesh died that moved on the earth. Revelation 16:2, every living creature in the sea dies. And here's the cool thing. In Genesis 7:21 through 24, I should read it to you because you're all going to be so thrilled. As this, as I said, solves all of our problems. I'll start at 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things, and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Now in Revelation 16, one through 3, all creatures in the sea die. Let me finish this one. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Verse twenty-four, chapter seven, Genesis. Here we go. And the waters prevailed on the earth one hundred and fifty days. One hundred and fifty days. Five months. Revelation 9.5. Nothing dies for 150 days. In Revelation 9.5. I have 150 days. Here I got water. 150 days. What is God saying? What is God doing? Next week, we will endeavor to persevere.